But, you know, that's one thing about lupus I don't understand is none of the other things are approved for LN either. So what's the big deal? That's the one thing you don't understand about lupus. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Freely Filtered the twice-a-month podcast that summarizes and pontificates on recent NEFJC journal clubs. NEFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor. This podcast may discuss off-label and unapproved medications. Hello. My name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight we have the full filtrate and two special guests. Alfred Kim at Washington University is an assistant professor and a rheumatologist. Alfred, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, so my name is Al Kim. I uh, founded and co-direct the Lupus Clinic at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Al H. Kim. And for full disclosure, uh, the product we'll be talking about is going to be belimumab, and I do consult uh, with ad- uh, advisory boards, and also I have uh, research funding from Glasgow Smith Klein, who sells and markets belimumab. And Dawn Castor, the University of Louisville, she's an assistant professor and a nephrologist. Dawn, you want to introduce yourself? Yes. Uh, good evening, uh, Dawn Castor. I'm an adult nephrologist. I am director of our glomerular disease clinic, of which uh, approximately a third of the patients have lupus nephritis. I have both translational and clinical research interests in lupus nephritis. I also must disclose that I have done consulting uh, with GSK, who is the maker of uh, Blumenau. Excellent. And we have the full filtrate. Matt? Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Sparks at Nephrosparks on Twitter, and I'm at Duke University. I have no conflicts of interest, but I am an ardent supporter of the renin angiotensin system and purveyor of the word kidney. Samira? My name is Samira Farouk. I'm a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai in New York. And no disclosures for this, I tweet at SS Farouk. And I have no expertise in glomerular disease. Swap. Hey, I'm Swapnil Hiramad. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. My, I have no specific conflicts except that I'm not a glomerulologist. I'm a tubulologist and a hypertensionologist. And Jenny. Hi, I'm Jenny Lin. I'm a physician scientist and adult nephrologist at Northwestern University. I tweet at Jenny J. Lin. And as someone who attends mainly at the VA, I hardly see any lupus patients. Oh, sounds like we've put together a great group of experts for this <laughs> to discussion. Interpret this study, yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, lupus nephritis is a perplexing and frustrating problem in nephrology. Despite years of focused studies and some of the first and longest-running multicenter RCTs in nephrology, we are left with treatments that still don't cross the chasm. Roughly 50% of patients with lupus eventually develop lupus nephritis, and though we treat them with powerful immunosuppressants, more than half of them never make it into complete remission, and even if they do, they are often still plagued with recurrent flares despite chronic maintenance therapies. The end result is that roughly 40% of patients with diffuse proliferative lupus and 20% with membranous lupus ultimately progress to kidney failure. B-cell activating factor, or BAF, 
is involved in the pathogenesis of lupus and lupus nephritis. The binding of BAF to B cells increases their survival and promotes maturation and differentiation toward autoantibody production. Belimumab is a recombinant human IgG monoclonal antibody that inhibits the soluble form of BAF, preventing activation of BAF receptors, thus inhibiting B-cell survival and maturation. Belimumab is approved for the treatment of lupus, though specifically not lupus nephritis, since 2011. It decreases disease activity and allows patients to reduce steroid use. It also reduces lupus flares. Post hoc analysis of these initial trials hinted that belimumab could decrease kidney complications. So that brings us to this problematic study. One of the tenets of good research design and execution is you design the intervention and how you're going to analyze the results before you start any experiment. The whole point of trials.gov is to force people to state the trial rules up front so there is no monkey business as people try to find a positive result from the mountains of collected data. Today's trial violates that primary tenet. The investigators declared how they were going to analyze the study, and by those initial rules, this is a negative trial. At some point during the trial, they changed the outcomes of interest, and by the new rules, the study, big surprise, was transformed into a positive trial. I am uncomfortable with this. The rules of science are harsh and unforgiving, but what we gain from that is, hopefully, reliable and trustworthy results. This is a drug that it looks like people are going to need to take monthly, possibly indefinitely, to reduce their chances of bad kidney outcomes by about 10%. If we are going to ask our patients to do this, we should demand that the evidence supporting this is above board and on the level. I don't think this clears the bar. You're taking away all my thunder. You've stolen my thunder already. Yeah, that was the well, intention. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so so let, me, let me quiz you. Why are these trials called the bliss trials? Why is this bliss lupus nephritis? Oh, because uh, the other name for BAF is uh, B lymphocyte uh, stimulator, abbreviates as BLYS, which is bliss. I think that's the why they're called the bliss trials. Is there some other reason? I guess so. Yeah, okay. I guess you read the summary. I did read the summary. <laughs> I did do my. I knew I was going to get pimped. I knew it was coming. I do my best to get ready for these things. I've, I got to confess, I've never used the drug. Al, Dawn, you guys have used it. What, what what's it like? So. Full disclosure, as a nephrologist, I have patients that are already on this for extra renal manifestations of lupus. But as a nephrologist, I have not personally added on this drug for the treatment of nephritis as of yet. Yeah, so I probably have maybe close to 50 people on regular blimimab. As you know, this was approved by the FDA back in 2011, and its uptake in the rheumatology community was very slow. I think in general, rheumatologists are very cautious about adding new mechanisms of action to virtually all of our uh, diseases, uh, simply because uh, there's always a lot of skepticism that a drug really isn't uh, as effective or maybe more harmful than had been published. But the reality is uh, bulimimab is, um, in our experience, particularly in African-Americans, we do have very nice responses, both in terms of patient-reported outcomes, but also in terms of physician-reported outcomes. And I think this has given me confidence to use it more in extra renal lupus. For lupus nephritis, it becomes a little bit of a different story. The initial trials, the BLIS-52 and BLIS-76, that were used to um, gain FDA approval for systemic lupus 
um, was underpowered to look at uh, renal involvement. And so as a result, there was, the, there was no real conclusive evidence that it was going to be effective or not. And so as a result, it has been slow to um, be used for this particular purpose. And this is the reason why this trial probably has been published in, in New England Journal of Medicine simply because of the, the, you know, the disease, but also the mechanism. And when you put these people on the drugs, are they on it indefinitely or do you use it for a certain period of time? Initially, we were thinking that maybe we'd just have to use it as a bridge until we find something else. But one of the things we've noticed is that the drugs is drug is really safe. It's one of the safest drugs we use, probably second to hydroxychloroquine, which is very, very well tolerated by our patients. You know, it has very minimal immunosuppressive effect actually on the net immune system, but nevertheless, it still has a modulating effect, certainly on B-cell biology. And for those patients whose disease are B-cell driven, which we don't know a priori, it seems to work really well. But again, I think it's become to the point where we have patients now that are getting close to 787 to eight years on the drug, and they're not going to change. Again, their quality of life is improved. And so this is something that we want to make sure that we continue to uh, maintain. So it's kind of an indefinite, you go on it and you're getting a monthly infusion forever. Yeah, or weekly subcutaneous injections. So there's a, yeah, so Don was about to pitch in there and maybe I'll let you finish that sentence. Well, I was going to say an important point is the study was uh, looking at the IV uh, use of this drug, but it is available sub-Q, which is the way it is often used in rheumatology is my observation uh, because of the ease of uh, subcutaneous use. Is it self-administered? Yeah, so that is a huge issue for us. We, you know, like every disease, you measure either disease activity or damage. Uh, disease activity largely is reversible, damage is irreversible. And the a major source of damage on top of disease activity in lupus is corticosteroid use. So there is good data demonstrating that both corticosteroids add to damage in lupus in lupus as a whole. Bumumab is able to reduce steroid burden in patients with lupus long-term, and as a result, there is improvement in damage uh, indices. Um, Not that our damage indices are very good, neither are disease activity measurements. And this is, I think, the reason why lupus, we are very tolerant of marginal data, and there's a ton of reasons for this, not because we're sloppy. Yeah, so I think the elephant in the room is the opening statement uh, about the design of this study and, you know, that they kind of changed their primary endpoint in the middle of the study. And, you know, in some of the things that were in the primary endpoint, I think uh, we have newer data that shows that those things actually don't really predict long-term outcomes in, in lupus nephritis, such as urinary sediment. And I'm just throwing this out there as a hypothetical, but should we keep a primary endpoint when we know we have newer data that shows better endpoints. Well, let, let's uh, let's build up. Let's let's start with the methods and let and. But uh, th- this is going to be this is going to be the primary topic that we're going to be talking about over and over again. And I think the questions are good questions. But let's uh, let's make sure everybody's on the same page. Dwapnil, do you want to help us with that? Yeah. So uh, I'll just note that we have already had one extra renal and one renal mention. <laughs> I'm keeping track of them. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, uh, but. That's what that's our biggest listener listeners is the renal versus kidney. So let's keep them happy, okay? So, um, but I had one question before I dive into the methods is that, you know, to me, immunology is such a black box, right? There are T cells, B cells, and, and people say, oh, the white cell, you know, I've been mycophenolate, I see the white cell go down or azathioprine. Uh, but then they say it's not the overall white cells, but it's the B cells. And then it's not the B cells, but it's the 
CD20 B cells and then it's not the CD20 B cells but it's the naive CD20 B cells or whatever. It seems like, uh, you know, turtles all the way down. Um, what does this do? You know, is it, is there something we can measure um, or is it? Sorry, what does that mean? Turtles all the way down. I've never heard that before. Oh, that's a, this is an explanation for how gravity works is that, uh, is why, why do people stick to the ground? Oh, cause there's turtles, invisible turtles on top of them. And then the question is, well, what keeps the turtles down? And they're like, oh, well, there's a turtle on top of the turtle. But the line is there's turtles all the way down. It's turtles it's all like the way down. It's like there is no explanation. It's like the, it's a self, uh, you know, it's a cycle. Yeah. Do you know I the mean. shell of a turtle helps buffer the acidosis that it gets from going deep into the water? I think I just aged everybody else on this podcast by not getting that reference. <laughs> Do turtles get lupus nephritis? I don't think so. No, no autoantibodies at all. Prestige. You, you, need, you need turtles in your animal lab. Why, why rats and mice? Come on, turtles would be so much more cute. And they would oh, they wouldn't run away, idea. right? If you if you let them loose, they wouldn't run away. No, the turtle in Shit's Creek runs away. They can definitely run away. Anyway, sorry, we can talk about the B cells. So anyway, I I can talk about Bliss a little bit because I actually think this is a very interesting cytokine, and I, if we take a minute of time here, you know, so it's interesting because Bliss was uh, cloned by like I think six six or seven groups simultaneously around two thousand. That's the reason why it has these different names. And bliss transgenic mice certainly develop rampant autoreactivity. Uh, they have high titer autoantibodies, and also the breadth of autoantibody repertoire is quite impressive. On top of that, they also get lupus-like nef- um, manifestations. They get proteinuria. There's uh, you know glomerulonephritis and histology. Uh, what's weird about bliss though is that there is a related cytokine called April, and they're both part of the TNF ligand superfamily, you know, similar to TNF alpha. They bind to an array of receptors. One's called BR3 or BAF receptor. One's called TACI, T-A-C-Y. The other one's called BCMA. And so this is complicated because these three receptors differentially bind to their two ligands. So uh, bliss binds to all three, but bliss preferentially binds to BAF receptor or BR3. Whereas uh, April does not bind to BR3, it just binds to TACI and BCMA. So you're seeing t- new targets in systemic lupus eritosis where just, you know, blocking, you know, having a recombinant TACI float around, for example. All right, and that one's called ATACI-CEP that's being developed um, by EMD Serrano. So in any event, the, also the type of B cells that express these receptors are different. So BR3 or BAF receptor and TACI are expressed by most B cells, transitional B cells, follicular B cells, marginal zone B cells. TACI is not expressed by germinal center B cells, which are largely driving uh, most of your B cell responses. On the other hand, BCMA is pretty much expressed only by antibody secreting cells, plasma cells, plasma blasts. So this very complicated biology is not fully understood. And then one last thing that we know. Oh, I feel so much better that it's not fully understood. The decision just to, I was not going to learn this until it was fully understood. And then I could just learn it once. Right. Well, I'm I'm going to tell you. Yeah. This this is as this is as 2020 as it gets, man. Okay. Swap. Hit hit us with the methods. What 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 is this study? All right. Uh, quickly, the inclusion criteria were people with lupus, uh, based on the you know the ACR criteria. Uh, adults, uh, ANA more than 180 or anti DSDNA or both. You know, so that's pretty legit. Uh, they did include biopsy proven class three, four, or five. Uh, which are the ones I guess had been excluded in the earlier uh, Blitz trials. So people that we see and we care about. 
and they needed to have proteinuria more than one gram a day. So a PCR of more than one. Exclusion is anyone with a GFR less than 30 uh, people who had been on dialysis in the last one year who had received, you know, rituximab or any other B-cell targeted therapy, uh, previous failures with cyclo or MMF because, you know, that was the induction regimen as we'll see and uh, pregnancy or breastfeeding probably just because of safety. And no, no transplant, right? Uh, I didn't see that. They say on dialysis, but I guess that would include Yes, Kitty. Yeah. Uh, how many of these people were new diagnoses um, of lupus nephritis, right? If they had, they couldn't have had failure of, of uh, cyclophosphamide or Celsep, but they could have had successful remission with those drugs. Is that? Am I interpreting that correctly? I think they couldn't have had failure of both. Was my understanding. They didn't have to be naive. So we had a mixture of new, and I think we have a mixture of new diagnoses and fresh patients and patients that had been presumably on these drugs for quite a bit, but had some degree of remission because they have got proteinuria and an act and a new a recent biopsy right within six months. Yes. Yeah, so the biopsy was either for new diagnosis or flare, I think, and because it had to be within six months, so they had presumably had active disease. And then just note the median diagnose the median time from diagnosis to um, enrollment in the study was three point three years. So the vast majority of these people are people either they're chronically flaring and have poorly controlled disease or hard to control disease, or just happen to have another de novo flare where they had a recent biopsy. That feels like a pretty heterogeneous population. I'd almost want no. I'd, I'd almost want to know, you know, if you get patients that are fresh that are new lupus nephritis, presumably they're going to have a higher response rate than people that have already proven that they failed their initial therapy. And I'd kind of want to look at those people separately. Um, okay, you wouldn't have the enrollment. You. I promise you. <laughs> I, I, no, I get. I, I get. There's a lot of problems with it. I'm just. I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to keep track of what's going on here. Keep going, swap. And so on that point of enrollment, you know, this this took 21 countries and 107 sites to get about 450 patients, right? So uh, it, it would be far more difficult, I guess, if they had uh, stuck to naive patients. So they were in, the intervention was they were randomly assigned to receive either intravenous belumumab uh, at a dose of 10 milligram per kg, which I presume is a standard dose, uh, on a background of standard therapy, right? So people say, hey, this is compared to placebo, but both the placebo group and the belumumab got a background of standard therapy. So this was add-on. And uh, the standard therapy was um, either induction with cyclophosphamide or MMF. Uh, for cyclophosphamide, they used the um, Eurolupus protocol. For IV cyclophosphamide and for MMF, they used the, you know, the ARMS protocol uh, by uh, Jerry Apple and others, uh, which, which I guess are pretty commonly used protocols. And then if they were on cyclophosphamide, they were transitioned to uh, azathioprine, which is, uh, I guess, the standard practice. The belumumab itself was given day one, day 15, day 29. So every two weeks for the first month and then every month, every 28 days thereafter. Don, Don, when you look at the standard therapy, is this like exactly what you do or is this like, eh, I don't do this? What I thought was really interesting is I think a lot of people, if they use cyclophosphamide for induction, they're still using MMF for maintenance. I know that wasn't what the Eurolupus trial did, but that's what I think most people are doing. MMF is certainly used more frequently initially. Well, they found that here also, right? They had like two thirds in that. Yeah. And, and that also brings up, you know, are we, the, the group that was selected to get cyclophosphamide, uh, there might be some key points about that group maybe having previously not 
had optimal responses to MMF, which already puts them in a higher risk category of not responding. So, but we can go into that later. But, but yeah, I, I think the big caveat here is I think most people would be using MMF as maintenance, um, regardless of initial therapy or induction therapy. I don't really love the term induction because usually you don't get to remission <laughs> during that period. Um, so you can have your initial therapy and your follow-up therapy. And then the azathioprine, I only use it in the case of someone that doesn't tolerate MMF or someone that's planning pregnancy So, or that happens to get pregnant. I, we don't ever want someone that's actively flaring to get pregnant, but sometimes it happens. And um, the dose of cyclophosphamide, honestly, I haven't used cyclophosphamide so, for lupus in a long time. <laughs> so for your lupus, it's really easy. It's just 500 milligrams every two weeks, and it's for three months. And the NIH was like, was that a higher dose, like 750 or a gram or something like that? Well, it's per meter squared. So it depends on, I've actually had some patients that are small enough that if you calculate the dose, it's not terribly different uh, with NIH. So it's a range of doses uh, following, you know, their their nadir anywhere, typically from uh, 500 to 1,000. Some people say 750 milligrams per meter squared. So it really depends on size. Al, any other comments on the uh, the usual therapy for these people? Yeah, I think Don covered it all. I mean, the hardest part about this is that the clinical trial population rarely reflects the real world population. And so I think this is one of the things we struggle with with our disease, not only clinical heterogeneity, but also now because of the disease, A, the disease is uncommon. It's 1% of the world population. You know, it increases or decreases based off of, of race and obviously sex. But um, the bottom line is that Everyone now has, you know, because of the lack of data, everyone kind of does things a little bit differently. And so, you know, when they come in, I think that's going to be one thing that we don't always fully control for is past therapy and its impact or its imprinting potentially immunologically, let's just say hypothetically, on future responses downstream. Um, Again, we don't know anything about this. And this is a huge confounder in our trials. Swap, you want to keep going? And they got uh, steroids, of course, which was based on the investigator's uh, discretion. Um, on the on the cyclo versus MMF, uh, so the randomization was stratified uh, based on whether they were going to get cyclo or MMF so that, you know, it would be balanced across uh, both the groups. Uh, same for, you know, uh, based on race, uh, black or non-black patients were uh, stratified. I didn't see them, they didn't see them mention how they assessed race. That seems to be super important now. They, right. Was that in the supplement, which of course I did not uh, read? No, I think this was sort of self-identified. Uh, exactly. I think people are going to become more cognizant about how this is being identified as time goes on, uh, as well as, you know, how was the GFR calculated? The uh, ACE inhibitors or ARB, as well as hydroxychloroquine was encouraged for all patients. Uh, and then let's move on to the uh, two things. Uh, one is the endpoints. And before I get to the endpoints, the funding, the trial was funded, of course, by the sponsor GSK. Uh, but I'm just reading from the actual wordage use is uh, they contributed to the design of the trial, the collection, analysis and interpretation of the data and the decision to submit the manuscript for publication. Furthermore, sponsors also supported the authors in the development of the manuscript and the medical writing support. Um, and six of the authors are employees of the sponsors. And, and and we have discussed this before. It's like, come on, this is a big trial. Uh, you know, the introduction, any of the authors can write in their sleep. Uh, I, I'm sure Al uh, and Don could write the introduction uh, to, to a paper like this. And the methods are developed in the protocol. The results are just, you know, you factually narrated. All that is left with the discussion. Why do you need a medical writer? 
you know why do you need uh, the help of uh, someone to spin the results i i i just cannot fathom uh, why you need someone to do your work it's like hey you know we are academic authors but we are going to be just be first authors or second authors on a new england paper and i don't bother to type out the words um i like i like angry swap now i like this <laughs> actually I, I have someone doing my podcast for me right now like, <laughs> like the hulk he's just always angry Right. Wait, wait, wait is, is, Jeffrey, is that Jeffrey there? Yeah, actually, my brother is sitting here. Uh, it's not me that's talking right now. Um, uh, so anyway, so so that and the reason I bring this up is, of course, what has happened with the endpoints, and and uh, hopefully we'll get a you know nicer version of of why. And and Joel and I, of course, have the uh, very suspicious uh, take on this. So the primary endpoint was supposed to be a composite of a complete or partial remission or no response, and the definition of complete response and partial response included urinary sediment. There, there had to be, you know, decrease in proteinuria, uh, GFR had to be stable, uh, they should not have had treatment failure, and the urinary sediment should not be active. Uh, so from what I can understand, they changed that somewhere in between, uh, and, and it's not clear why and when that was changed. Well, I got a sense. I, I think I know why. <laughs> the study was negative! <laughs> They did not, they didn't, well, hold on. So, they did not look at the data prior to changing the endpoint. So if you're going to make an argument of the p-value violation, you know, in multiple comparators, this, that, this is not the issue. I have, I think I have some reasons for this, but um, we can discuss that once uh, Swap Neil. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and we can see in the results that the number of events, when you look at that outcome, were much lower, right? So uh, I, I, it, that makes some sense. Uh, and the second one, though, is, you know, I thought the from whatever I could see is that if, if the proteinuria was more than three grams, it had to be a 50 percent drop and, and less than one gram. And if the proteinuria was less than oh, sorry, or, or less than three grams, so that there was a 50 percent reduction in proteinuria, which sort of makes sense to us. Right. Uh, a 50 percent reduction along with, you know, some absolute uh, decrease. And that 50% reduction is gone, and now it is uh, a UPCR of 0.7 or less. So, you know, that's to me, that sounds like a very soft reduction in proteinuria. Uh, so the inclusion is proteinuria more than 1 gram, and if you reach 700 milligram, oh, you are got a renal response. So that's a 300 milligram reduction in, in uh, proteinuria. That seems soft. Ish to me. So there is some background to that endpoint. So Maria Dallara published, I can't remember how many years ago, four or five years ago, looking in an exploratory uh, way, now looking at bulimumab data and looking at responders and non-responders, and then looking at one year after initiation of drug to see who are the ones that accrued more damage uh, at that one year time point. And it was, she found that, you know, based on, I, I think it was a rock curve analysis, you know, just found like 0.7 was actually the threshold that was observed in lupus nephritis patients where that, you know, above that uh, inflection point, you had an increased chance of having damage. Below that, you had decreased chance. And so that's part of the reason why 0.7 then was chosen as a potential cutoff as opposed to 0.5, which to me actually sounds arbitrary. Um, I, maybe there is a history. I actually don't know the history of 0.5 for UPC or 24-hour urine in lupus nephritis or in other glomerular diseases. 
Well, they also changed how they were, they were going to measure GFR, right? They went from a creatinine clearance to a, an eGFR calculation, which is people at this high range of GFRs, it's, that's a very sketchy. And, they, and in fact, they talk about that in their discussion session is that, you know, very small changes in serum creatinine of who knows what significance, right? They had a raw hamburger the night before can have dramatic effects in your eGFR calculation. And it wasn't clear to me whether this was a an issue of not being able to collect that in everybody at the end. And I, I don't know why they, they changed that point, but it was certainly collecting a 24-hour creatinine clearance on everybody after that amount of time might have been difficult, but I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, there could be legitimate reasons, right? Joel and I are, you know, have the bleak outlook on this. There could be real good reasons, but it would have been nicer that they had laid them out saying, hey, you know, we realized this wasn't working, so we changed. And... Uh, Another history on that point seven is long-term outcomes from the maintained trial show that less than point seven might be our our best target for because ultimately as a, a nephrologist my goal is to keep that person on dialysis to keep them from kidney disease progression whatever you tell me the best number is I want it 500 700 milligrams the truth is in lupus nephritis very few patients are actually getting to to those targets that are in those high-risk population, less than half. Don, you started that sentence by saying your goal is to keep people on dialysis. Off, off. So can I? Can you? Just, can we just get a clean? Okay. Can you just get a clean read with that? Yes. Saying the way you want it to be. Cause okay. Because pe- people would be concerned. Oh, absolutely. Gosh, sorry. <laughs> you didn't uh, mention a COI with Davida, but uh, yeah, people yeah. would have some suspicions. <laughs> no, my goal as a nephrologist is to keep people off. OFF, off dialysis. Most studies looking at long-term outcomes recently come to this point of, you know, 0.7 being a, a approximator at 12 months. So 0.7 at 12 months. Yeah. And, and again, with surrogate out uh, endpoints, the key is, you know, how many of these patients uh, do end up on dialysis. And, and albuminuria is, is interesting, is that not trying to be too negative about this, uh, but we have seen that albuminuria, you know, for example, using ACE or ARB in combination reduces albuminuria, but it doesn't reduce kidney failure. And, and of course, in diabetic nephropathy, um, intensive blood pressure lowering reduces albuminuria, but it doesn't reduce uh, kidney failure, uh, for example. Of course, I, I understand proteinuria in lupus is not the same as proteinuria in, in uh, diabetic nephropathy or hypertension, of course. Uh, but but in, in lupus, isn't proteinuria sometimes a uh, result of scarring? You know, in the sense that the disease can be quiescent, uh, but you just can have proteinuria. It doesn't mean they have active lupus. And the opposite is true, too. So I think this is, goes into the outcomes, which we'll hit in a second about proteinuria and its overall value. And if, let's say, you were doing a trial and you had unlimited amount of what kind of outcome would you choose, right? Like, you know, I would say biopsy, perhaps, but uh, is there anything else that is, you know, useful? I don't know. That's a great question. We don't have good urinary biomarkers or, you know, blood you know, biomarkers that we have pretty much suck ass. That's figurative. That's figurative, not literal. Just make <laughs> clarification me, okay, oh, oh, there. I, oh, let me say that slower again. <laughs> suck ass. But, <laughs> um, you know, and Don can commiserate, right? You know, th- this is what makes it so hard to study this damn disease is none of our outcomes are specific. None of them. And even though we teach about proteinuria, you know, the reality is it is one measure confounded by so many unmeasured variables that you just can't even fathom. That, 
and then it makes the, I think you just encapsulated right, the, the nephrology right there. That's why I that's why he didn't do it. <laughs> no, but our patients have but our patients have <laughs> outcomes that are important to them and it's not proteinuria and it's not changing EGFR at this high level. They're really concerned about going on dialysis and But that's where and, like, you know, reduction of prednisone could be a really important thing. You know, but they didn't really study that. I mean, in my ideal world, I would look at ten-year outcomes. I w- this is this is a pretty uh, good study, and that looked at two years, which is is rare actually in the clinical trials world to go out that far. But ten-year outcomes are are what's critical in these patients because a lot of them start with relatively normal kidney function. But what happens, and and I'm a fan of repeat biopsies, is over time they accrue damage, they get scarring. And even if you feel like you're doing reasonably well, that chronicity score goes up with every biopsy. And the difference between these populations with the outcomes they have is not so dramatic that it would be unethical to continue the study, right? This is not like an SGLT2 picture where you're like, oh, wow, nobody should nobody should remain in that placebo group. Here, do you, think, that, do you little... think they would have even studied it if it was 10 years? Could they afford that? And it's all about, you know, trying to, you know, make enough money when they sell the drug. The, this drug is already licensed. They're already making bank. They're just trying to get this additional indication whether it really prevents LN. What's the purpose of, if none of the other drugs are approved for lupus nephritis, then what's the point of the drug company going through They're still an unmet need, right? So look at the placebo group, right? But you could just use this drug in lupus nephritis. You don't have to have a... Yeah, exactly what Matt... But maybe it's so expensive. Is that yeah, no, no drug company too expensive? Yeah, right now, that's the problem. Right, that's exactly what Don's saying. You know, it's costly. But also, I mean, we know that. Okay, so there are a couple of caveats with the control group, right? That Joel already had brought up. But one of the things that you have to look at is say, why is our response rate thirty to forty percent? And I think one thing that we have a huge problem with that we're trying to better understand at a qualitative level is why medical adherence is so poor amongst lupus patients. So when we can measure, we can measure uh, hydroxychloroquine blood levels. And there's good data showing that a, a blood level of about 1,000 nanograms per mil, and this is data from France, from Natalie uh, Costa de Chamlou, who's done great work over the last 10, 15 years on this, shows that this 1,000 nanogram per mil threshold really is kind of this inflection point in terms of disease activity, better or worse, flares or no flares. And in our population, over 70% of our lupus patients here in St. Louis and the surrounding area have blood levels less than 700. So minimally, they're partially adherent. And then about 20% of our patients with lupus, and we are we are tracking their prescribing, all right? They are picking up their uh, refills, have an undetectable hydroxychloroquine blood level, all right? So to me, actually, I think the elephant in the room for our clinical trials is that we don't assess drug levels at screening, which may play a huge role in terms of how they're going to do in the, you know, this quote-unquote placebo group, right? And so you may squash signal to noise as a result, Right. I think this is a major problem within our own, you know, and again, we don't fully understand it. I, I know I opened up another whole can of worms about adherence and whatnot, but I think this is a major problem that we don't talk enough in, in our in our lupus clinic. And actually, trials. I think adherence is a, a huge point. And to that point, so the at the KDGO GN Controversies Conference, uh, in our discussion of lupus nephritis, is when someone was not responding, the first thing to do was verify adherence. That was number one. Before switching anything on the (laughs) soon-to-be-published guidelines, adherence will probably be emphasized. 
Is there any push to check um, hydroxychloroquine levels um, just therapeutically like troughs or peaks in patients that you're treating, or is that something that you do? So hydroxychloroquine has a body half-life of about, I believe, 50 days, but it's triphasic. So it's about, well, actually the biggest wild card we don't know is how does the tissue absorb or release hydroxychloroquine. Blood half-lives is about 20 hours. But the body half-life is about, you know, just, you know, just 50, 60 days. So the tissues are storing and releasing it at a very slow rate and maybe a ton of it too, right? So this is, this is something we actually tried to, with, with Jeff Sparks for full disclosure, we tried to, we worked with a, a pharmacoepidemiologist trying to do uh, some Monte Carlo simulations about what to tell our patients with lupus when the hydroxychloroquine shortages were you know, readily apparent during the early stages of the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you cut your dose in half? Do you just keep going full bore until you just run out? Or what is the best thing? Whatever that paper says is going to be wrong because we don't have a full um, understanding of the PKs of, of hydroxychloroquine. So that's a good question with an unclear answer. You're both the author and reviewer, too. That's special. <laughs> <laughs> reviewer, too. Oh. Yeah. This is the ideal situation, and yet look at the complete response rates. That is the problem with lupus nephritis. So in reality, in clinic, do I have a 40% response rate in my you know, clinical practice? I wish I could say, you know that was the case, but you throw in all the adherence issues and social issues. And so, so this is in the ideal clinical trial world. We still are seeing response rates that are lower than we should. This is a, a huge point of, I guess, an opportunity to, to improve care in this really difficult to treat disease. And I think that's part of why clinicians that treat patients with lupus nephritis are just so desperate for something that's better. <laughs> Anything that improves uh, that response rate. I'll, I'll let Jenny take it from here. Uh, I don't like, know though. we need to do capsulology? Yeah, exactly. Is it might explain some of the adverse effects or something <laughs> on the results. Uh, actually not that exciting to, well, kind of exciting, but not related to adverse effects. Um, so uh, briefly, belimumab is a white, off-white powder. It has to be reconstituted in water. When it's fully dissolved, it has to be clear or can appear a little bit of a yellow tinge. Um, and as we talked earlier, um, the trade name is Benlista. It was developed by Human Genome Sciences and GlaxoSmithKline. Also has, goes by the name Lymphostat B, and that's because of BAF's other name, Bliss, B lymphocyte stimulator that we also already discussed. Um, what I actually found most interesting reading about um, this was how they name monoclonal antibodies. Um, and I feel like we've always all had a lot of frustration with why are they called these things. And actually, when I learned about it, bilimumab is the, the perfect name. Um, and so since Joel, you always ask me a lot of questions. Can you tell me why this drug is named the way that it is? No, why is it, why is it not a Zmab or a Zumab versus it's a Mumab? Uh, well, Mumab, it's a human, it's a humanized mouth antibody, I believe. Is that right? You want to do it or you want to let me do it? No, that's, uh, <laughs> we'll let you do it because I don't know what I'm talking about. So there's a there's an official working group for this um, called the International Non-Propriety Name working group and they meet every few years to specifically talk about how to name monoclonal antibodies. And so these guidelines have changed a little bit over the last several years, um, but basically the name has four parts. The first is the prefix, and that is the only one really that the drug company gets to kind of choose by themselves to try to distinguish their drug. The other three are based on different components of the drug. So the next part is called the infix of the target 
or the disease. And so this is an immunomodulator. And so that's why it comes with the, this part of the word is where the LIM comes from. And then the next part um, is where did the antibody come from? So is it human, mouse, chimeric? And so here we have a fully human. So that's where we get the U, so LIMU. And then the MAB is for monoclonal antibody. Um, other source codes um, are, um, it was if it was chimeric, it would be XI. So for example, infliximab for the mouse, it would be OMAB. And so really the only thing that was added as extra to this was the BE. And I assume that was for the B cells and that's where belimumab comes from. So I'm sorry that I've trashed those drunk companies before for picking very confusing names, but there is a pretty serious method. All right. Are you guys ready for our results? Okay. 797 patients were split out of that group. Only 448 were randomized and they were equally split between the treatment arm and the placebo arm. And so within each arm, about a third of the participants had received cyclophosphamide induction versus MMF. And overall, more people in the placebo arm, for some reason, discontinued treatment. And mostly this was due to an adverse event in the MMF sub. In broad strokes, the typical study participant was female, around an average age of 33 years old, spilling about a little bit over three grams of protein per day. Only 10% were male and only 14% self-identified as black. So about half of the participants were of Asian descent, and those were recruited in Asia. The majority of participants had class 3 or 4 lupus nephritis on biopsy, and 16% had class 5. Uh, the majority of patients had a positive ANA, anti-double strain of DNA, C1Q, and a low C3, uh, but there were no notable differences in biomarker profiles between groups. Now, at the two-year mark, the primary efficacy response, notice I didn't say renal response, Matt, <laughs> was 43% in patients in the treatment group versus 32% in those who had received placebo. And this is with an odds ratio of 1.6 p-value of 0.03. As a secondary endpoint after one year, a similar result was seen in the treatment group, and that p-value was 0.02. So if you look at figure one, you can see that the curves for the primary efficacy response start to separate at around week 20, and where the curve falls flat for the placebo group, uh, the gap between the two groups seems stable from week 24 onwards. There's a complete response at uh, two, so the complete response at two years was seen in 30% of the treatment group versus 20% of the placebo group, and this had a p-value of 0.02. There were more patients in the treatment group uh, who had a decrease in the UPCR, UPCR to less than 0.5 at the two-year mark, and EGFR values in the placebo group trended downwards after the one-year mark, whereas they were stable in the treatment group. So one thing to note is that patients in the treatment group also had a lower risk of a kidney-related event or death at a hazard ratio of 0.51 and p-value of 0.01, but most of that difference is driven by proteinuria or kidney-related treatment failure. Death from any cause occurred in one person in the treatment group, um, zero in placebo, oh, sorry, in two in placebo, and only one person in the placebo group progressed to ESKD and zero from the treatment group. And one person from uh, each group had a doubling of serum creatinine from baseline. So in terms of like severe uh, kidney uh, phenotypes or outcomes, uh, it was a very low event rate in, in that respect. In terms of biomarkers, the author stated that the patients in the treatment group had greater reductions in double strain of DNA and C1Q, um, as well as an, increased, an increase in complement levels. 
And so these data were reported as a percent change over baseline, which makes sense if each person has a different disease activity level at the start of recruitment. But if you look at figure S5, you can see that in terms of the mean values at each week, uh, the trend seems to be true, but the error bars are huge and overlapping. So like if my grad student showed me data looking like that, I wouldn't be jumping to the conclusion that there was a meaningful difference in experimental endpoints. Uh, there were no statistics presented for that, so it probably wasn't significant. Um, and so I wouldn't say that these biomarkers would be used to monitor treatment response in this particular case. Uh, the graphs for the normalized circulating antibody levels look better uh, because they were normalized to circulating IgG to account for what you would expect to be lower levels if you had nephrotic range proteinuria. In subgroup analyses, uh, there weren't really any impressive uh, differences, but one trend that stood out is that patients who underwent MMF induction tended to have more improvement in kidney function um, in the treatment arm. And then finally, there were no uh, big differences in adverse event profiles between groups, but infections seem to be the most common adverse event experienced by either. And so that is my summary of the results. So in the outcome of increasing proteinuria and impaired kidney function, which was the thing that drove most of these uh, kidney events, is there any place in the supplement where they break down what we're actually looking at? That you'll have to ask Swap. <laughs> I did not read the full supplement. <laughs> so is that a, mostly... Do they ever give any transparency to that? So uh, it's mostly proteinuria. So the increased proteinuria impaired kidney function of both. I'm pretty sure it was proteinuria. Let me look up, look it up as we are speaking. So you know, in, in in summary, these patients that got the belalimab seem to do better. They have uh, these uh, the endpoints were decreased uh, depending on how you measured them, somewhere around fifty percent less. Uh, the the patients. Came coming in, very few of them had reached meaningful kidney outcomes of a double serum creatinine or uh, dialysis. So that it's hard to it's hard to make any comments on that. No significant adverse events, and uh, at least a trend. The wind was blowing towards better biomarkers in terms of disease activity, whether it's DS DNA or complement levels. Is that right? Yes, and as Don and um, Al had pointed out earlier, the primary efficacy response was low. So even though it's statistically different, um, we're talking about 40% versus 30%. And what does that mean uh, for if you're extrapolating that out to your clinic population? And was there any attempt to do uh, uh, patient satisfaction, quality of life, anything like that? Nothing like that. Uh, in the previous they literature... Did, they did collect it. Al, they did collect it, and well, they're going to report it separately. And I presume that this is positive, but I'm, I'm presuming this is positive in previous studies, not lupus nephritis studies, clearly, but in previous studies, has this been, has this been looked at with this drug? Yeah, up to six years, I think. Patients like this, yeah. they feel better on the drug? They do. Mm -hmm. And our own internal data also is consistent with that at WashU. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I'd like to point out kind of two things with, with the results. One, earlier, there was some concern about uh, going from a proteinuria level of one gram, which was the entry criteria, uh, down to 0.7 as, as the response. But the reality is most of the patients had much higher levels of proteinuria. And I think that's important to, to point out because, you know, the mean here was, uh, was much higher around three grams. And as a clinician, going from three to three grams a day to 0.7 grams a day is a, is a meaningful response. I'd also like to say, you know, I think the, the one thing that 
you know, they did look at complete response as a, as a secondary endpoint, but there isn't a huge difference between their primary endpoint and a complete response, really the 0.7 versus the 0.5. Um, and a lot of other studies do look at combined complete and partial responses. Um, and 0.7 for people that start at three grams is actually a little more rigorous than a lot of people would define a partial response, which is typically 50%. Just be careful because that 3.2 average had a standard deviation of 2.7. So there was a lot of, a lot of those patients are right, might be right sitting right over one gram and, and we only have uh, 40% of the people getting down to 0.7. So not, not, it's, not, it's unclear at least, at least, because we don't get an average proteinuria at the end of uh, the trial on people that were on the on the drug is that right? We don't we don't get to see if the whole if we move the whole pile down to two point two or one point eight or something like that. We just get the number, kind of get the number of people that removed proteinuria because they mix it up with changes in GFR. It's uh, not entirely clear what's going on with proteinuria. Swap, were you able to find anything in the supplement on that? Do they break it down? They they don't break down no. that one. No. Al, can you tell us why why is this so well tolerated and also you know, what, what is your thought on to, like, usually when you see drugs that don't, that immunosuppressive drugs, they don't have a lot of side effects. They usually don't work that well. Like, why is this working so well? Or you think, or from the lupus trials? I just, I'm just curious as to why that, like, how is it so specific when you told us it hits all those different things and didn't really seem to be that specific for the, for the, the effect? I think it's, I think it's a great question. Um, you know, I think the one thing that we, as rheumatologists, we were guilty of initially when we were looking using these biologics is that we were thinking that this was going to be an all or none response. Clearly, I don't think it's going to be that. It's going to be a partial response, almost like a knockdown experiment. This is the reason why rheumatology has been so interesting over the last 15, 20 years, because these monoclonal antibodies to various cytokines essentially function as a knockdown experiment in humans. Again, it's surprising to see it that well tolerated. I mean, I would make a strong argument that rituximab is also very well tolerated too. Yeah, in interestingly, you always compare the cyclophosphamide rituximab and they're very similar that that's always been surprising to me is you thought that rituximab was so much more tolerated but the they put them next to each other they're not that much different mm -hmm. i think the adverse reactions that you see in rituximab are very real again it's an x so as a result it's a chimeric antibody that you know probably provides a lot of the immunogenicity for rituximab that you don't necessarily see with bulimumab or other humanized antibodies. And so I think the this is telling us, along with numerous other humanized antibodies, that A, you got to go humanized or fully human first. All right, chimeric antibodies are so year 2000. Second is that the B-cell you know, manipulations are pretty well tolerated by the vast majority of people with B-cell-mediated diseases. So th this continues to be an enthusiastic target, I think, for a lot of industry um, people because um, if there's all this, you know, ability to survive B-cell depletion at a temporary level, right, then, you know, if you modulate it and just do a survival, you know, knock down one cytokine for survival, you would anticipate it should be safe too. And that's what it bore, what bore out. Well, and I think I was going to add, like, some of the side effect profile that comes from the other agents are kind of off-target effects. And, you know, MMF has a, a large number of patients with GI side effects, for example, that have tolerability issues that, you know, are kind of separate from the 
immunosuppressive effects of, of the drug. You know, looking beyond the immunosuppressive uh, effects, uh, one of the benefits of using a monoclonal antibody is, you know, you, you don't get these these other side effects profiles that, that limit probably some adherence. And- hey, I was just looking at table one. Looks like we mischaracterized something. We were talking about the time from, we were trying to get a sense of uh, how long these people had had lupus nephritis before they were enrolled. And we were reading off the time from diagnosis of lupus. And that was the three years. The diagnosis of lupus nephritis was 0.2 years. So that's real quick. And so, and the interquint the IQR is pretty wide, right? There, you know, twenty five percent of the people were more than three point three or three point four years. So there definitely are people that have been here for a, a lot of bit longer. But the vast majority, not the vast majority, but a significant portion of this are really kind of fresh lupus nephritis patients. Yeah, oh, that's a great point, Joel. Because I think one of the weird things is that typically we see lupus nephritis at incident presentation. We don't really see it being recruited, right? So this tells me a lot of these patients were non-adherent to medicine. That's you know, you you see this in people who are undertreated in lupus, in systemic lupus recruitment of new domains. I, I think that's something that we we've been seeing. Okay. So uh, any other uh, important points that we haven't covered on this study? Swap, did you get all your angst out about the change in the uh, the protocol? Are you are you are you finished with that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I'm sure. Like the these guys are you know good people. They are very smart and experienced investigators. It would be just nice to have more transparency about these uh, decisions. They all seem logical, you know, from Don and uh, it, it. These are probably logical things for them to have done. It's just that it would have been nicer to be more explicit about what happened and, and how they made the changes. Um, and again, this partly, you know, again, I'm going off a little bit of a tangent, as I always do, is that uh, they are looking for a win, right? And this is what drives the whole publishing industry. They are looking for a P of less than 0.05 so they can get into the New England and they can get marketing rights and, you know, approval and make profits. I believe this is an advance, despite my skeptical, suspicious nature. This this looks like there is something there, you know, but it's it's not fantastic. It's not like you know, a penicillin for meningitis or what have you. But it is a progress, and and the 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 current way of how you know either you win or you lose. There is nothing in between, right? Uh, that unfortunately leads to this kind of uh, you know the, the need for them to show a dramatic result. I, uh, otherwise, you know, the stock market's not happy, and and New England doesn't accept that paper. Do we have a lot of lupus drugs that are like this that have been approved for lupus in general, but not specific? Not and and, and let me rephrase that. I don't really care about approval. I'm really, are there a host of drugs that we're using in lupus that have not been tested and are not being used for lupus nephritis? Certainly, hydroxychloroquine. I don't think it has any effect on lupus nephritis. That's not true. Am I right on that. Don't say that. Oh, Don, teach me. Teach me. Well, walk us through that. What, what, what's, what's the story with HCQ in lupus nephritis? Uh, hydroxychloroquine should be used in every patient with lupus nephritis. I mean, it uh, long-term um, patients with lupus nephritis has been shown to reduce flares. It also, in patients just with SLE, being on hydroxychloroquine re- reduces the risk of developing nephritis. I mean, these are more population-based studies, not randomized controlled trials, but it is actually in the guidelines that patients with lupus nephritis should all be on hydroxychloroquine unless otherwise contraindicated or or some anti-malarial. And that's the thing, right? Like rheumatologists seem to use this very, very commonly, but somehow when we looked at it locally, nephrologists were, you know, not very keen on that. 
and we standardize our protocols now we have a special g and glomerulonephritis clinic and all my lupus patients have gone there Phew. uh but uh, they they it does help because they are all on hydroxychloroquine and and it seems i was not treating them properly by not giving them uh, hydroxychloroquine it's the only drug that's been shown to have a survival benefit in lupus the only one now it could be just because the other ones are understudied right um, can you talk about hcq yeah, now yeah uh -huh. mm -hmm. i guess anti-malarials as a whole uh and so uh you know, and then, you know, there was this Canadian study, new, another New England Journal paper, very small study, though, in, uh, from, in Canada, where they actually took stable lupus patients, and then half of them is something like, I think, 50 people. In um, those 50 people, they withdrew and then gave them placebo, right, and it was blinded. And those people had a flare rate, I think, of like 2.7 fold higher than the people who stayed on hydroxychloroquine. And then severe flares was like 6.1 fold higher. And then people were flaring as early as two weeks. So, Okay. Uh, any other uh, uh, points on this study that uh, anybody wants to make? I mean, I think there are a lot, of, a lot of more questions. I think, you know, as a nephrologist, treating patients with rare diseases and that are difficult to treat, I like as many tools as I can have. So I will take it as an additional tool and, you know, be happy to have it. Um, something that uh, you know, the study wasn't really designed to do um, is whether this could potentially be um, long-term steroid sparing. But the drug's already been shown to do yeah. that, right? That's, that's already kind of established science. In, in lupus. In lupus. Uh, but Most of my lupus nephritis patients also have lupus. I'm not sure about yours. But. <laughs> yeah. No, but uh, so, you know, the one of their endpoints was getting people down to 10 milligrams by the 24-week endpoint. But, but this study still used fairly what we call standard prednisone dosing. Uh, so they started off with pulse dosing, um, and then you could have 0.5 to 1 milligram per kg up to 60 milligrams a day. And I think a lot of people are questioning whether, you know, that amount is needed. And uh, there's kind of been this push for an even lower dose and, and 10 milligrams is not really the target maintenance dose you really because uh and i know um al you were talking about damage and steroid use is synonymous with damage long term in, in lupus nephritis and accumulating more damage less than 7.5 uh milligrams a day should really be the target and the new ular era edta guidelines which is a mouthful, which are the most up-to-date lupus nephritis guidelines that we have because ACR hasn't updated since 2012 and KDGO has not officially updated since 2012, but should be coming out very shortly with their glomerular disease guidelines that uh, include lupus nephritis. But um, the, the new guidelines do reflect this goal of targeting, you know, getting down to a lower maintenance steroid dose. I think that's the going to be the thing in the next five years for lupus. How any way possible can you get down to five milligrams or below a day, you know, without compromise, without compromise. Yeah, lowering the steroid dose would be a huge patient-oriented outcome success, right? Yeah, steroids, I guess a bunch of the non-adherence is driven by the steroid side effects. Well, no, they actually stay on steroids because it's the only drug that acutely works. Right. So there's an interesting psychology here that we're still struggling to communicate with our patients with. And this is really on the providers, I think, 
um, plate to be able to, you know, reprogram our lupus patients. Okay, let me see, see if I got this right. That what we what we have here is a uh, randomized controlled trial of patients with lupus nephritis. These patients were ra- randomized to this monoclonal antibody that affects this signal that matures and preserves B cells that seem to be uh, producing the toxins that are advancing or progressing lupus nephritis, belilumab. And uh, this drug was given for uh, drug versus placebo for two years. Uh, people got infusions every month. They were on usual therapy with uh, uh, induction and maintenance, either on the cyclophosphamide followed by azathioprine or uh, uh, cell, uh, mycophenolate mofetil followed by more mycophenolate mofetil. And uh, after uh, two years, uh, they found uh, decreased renal outcomes in their group, and the renal outcomes were defined as. Uh, getting their proteinuria down uh, below a PCR of 0.7, or a- and uh, maintaining their uh, GFR within 20% of their initial one, uh, and it had to be a GFR greater than 60. They achieved this. It was uh, 40% in the people on drug, and 30% of people achieved that in the people that are in the placebo group, uh, kind of a number needed to treat somewhere around 10. And there were uh, this drug appears to be well tolerated. There were no major adverse events from the drug. And one of the big question marks about the study was they did change their outcomes uh, midstream, which is sketchy. Is there any other big parts of the study that I missed? Is that, is that, is that encapsulated as a pretty decent summary? It sounds good. So what's, what's the future? Like uh, uh, Al and Don, you know, I would like, are you going to, if, if this is approved, are you going to start using it in lupus nephritis or you're going to be mm, maybe in some patients? Uh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I certainly feel like I will probably use it in some patients and in addition to other therapies. So um, there's a very small subset of patients that do have fairly quick responses to standard of care therapy. Um, so it might be that we start with that and then add this, although that's not the way the study was designed. And uh, calcineurin inhibitors probably have a role, especially with patients that are nephrotic and have mixed uh, lesions uh, at presentation. So, you know, I think, I think it, again, it's nice to have an additional tool and uh, it will be used, not in everybody, but... Yeah, I agree. I think that... Um... You know, to because of the safety profile, um, we've been in rheumatology pretty comfortable prescribing this, um, even though we're not we, we don't know if it's going to be the right type of patient, the type of lupus patient that will respond to it. So um, as long as we're aware of healthcare utilization costs and you know account for that, you know that's obviously the other um, thing here. I will wrap up though saying that there have been anecdotal reports, including a patient of mine that developed de novo proliferative lupus nephritis while on belimumab. Their disease actually was well controlled on belimumab and all of a sudden just exploded with proteinuria and uh, you know, just morphic RBCs on you know, sediment and uh, got biopsied and had proliferative LN. And so, uh, again, this is a very uncommon, could be a true, true, unrelated type of thing. And so there are uh, subsets within lupus nephritis, not just in terms of how we classify it pathologically or you know clinical outcomes, but more than that, that may be critical in understanding which patient population this works best in. And um, you know, uh, last point, if I can, Joel, uh, it's like uh, Liz Lightstone gave a nice uh, Glomcon uh, lecture on lupus, and she was very bullish on belumumab, of course, but also on uh, Voclosporin, which you mentioned. 
earlier today, Al, as well as uh, Obinutuzumab or something. Mm-hmm. Um, the new anti-CD20. Yeah, so it's know. like a Ritux, but uh, better or something. Humanized. Yeah, humanized. Yeah. It's more potent and all that. So. Mm-hmm. Right. Bing, bing. Bing, bing. <laughs> so uh, again, and it looks like this field is changing. In, in some ways, it's nice that there is hope for patients after a long, long time. Uh, you know, after MMF, uh, this is the first progress. But at the same time, I think you know, if those work better, then you know, this this may not go anywhere. Right? It's it's sort of like SGLT2 inhibitors, and then uh, when phenerenone came, it looks like ah, uh, you know, it, it's not much of an advance, perhaps. Well, we'll see. We'll see when the data comes out, and it'll be covered here on FJC. Let's do quick uh, uh, tubular secretions. I want to start with Samira. I know she's got to go pretty quickly. Do you got anything, Samira? Um, yeah, I did want to share something that I saw on Twitter. Um, so I really like um, medical-inspired art, um, and there is a um, someone on Twitter, I've never met them before, from the Philippines. They tweet at MCAMD. And she's been uh, drawing this uh, kind of like landscape of like trees that are like glomeruli and sharing her progress every few days or hours. I don't really know. And it's been really uh, fun to, to see that. And so I wanted to um, share that with everyone. Thanks, Samira. Uh, Matt, do you have something? I'm going to just plug uh, the ACKD workforce issue that uh, Samira and I spearheaded and has a lot of NEF Twitter uh, you can go to Renal Fellow Network, check that out. Um, we have a whole page devoted to it. And there's 11 articles, two editorials that cover everything that you would ever want to know about the current workforce and pontificating on the future. Does it talk about the Joint Rheumatology Nephrology Fellowship? Is that a thing yet? Uh, you know, I'm sure. I mean, here's the thing. You can make any career path that you want. All you have to do is name it. So I'm sure it exists. And I would say Don Caster has done it. We call a hashtag Sparky Power, by the way. You have a brother who's a rheumatologist. Does that count? By definition, yes. Alfred, what is this Sparky Power? Tell, to, to inform Neff Twitter what Sparky Power is. Uh, so it was a silly, drunken hashtag that was created in the presence of Jeff Sparks, who I've known since he was an intern here at Barnes-Jewish Hospital at Wash U. And then I uh, found out that Matt was a nephrologist. My, uh, my dad uh, it was a pediatric nephrologist at the University of Minnesota named Young Ki Kim. So I knew I wasn't going to do pediatrics nor nephrology. I had the pleasure of meeting Matt a couple times at ASN when I used to go pretty regularly. And you used to go to ASN? Like, yeah, I was a postdoc with Andre Shaw. And he did quite a bit of podocyte research. And I got out of that because I just don't trust the tools. But that's that aside, I um, really I enjoy my interactions with him. I really, frankly, do. And, but anyway, so the combination uh, over, you know, cocktail or 12 ended up just the like, hashtag Sparky part ended up working the best, was just the best way for me to express my appreciation for the uh, Sparks family as a whole. It, it, it's trending on Twitter. At least like five people use it. And, and here's the other thing I just want to make clear. Most rheumatologists believe that I am my brother's dad. I mean, I know we're from Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> So they really, really, I mean, we're five years apart, but I must look about 50 years older. Uh, Don, you got a, you got a tubular secretion for us? Oh goodness. I just hope everyone uh, stays safe. (laughs) I know it's a trying time right now. Uh, Swap, you got something? Yeah. It's so the plane from Louisville has landed in Canada with the, with the the vaccines uh, an hour ago or so. So finally can. Yeah. Have you, have you gotten an appointment to get the vaccine? 
Uh, no, we are just getting 3,000 doses in Ottawa, uh, which is going to be going to the... And again, I think there are going to be a lot of logistic issues, right, with the minus 80. So it, the plan is to give it to the people who work in the nursing homes first and, and then go from there because we are not very rich. So I'm not sure how we can get the minus 80 to the nursing homes, right? I, I know there are many smart isn't, people. Don't you just it. open the doors at minus 80 outside all the time in Ottawa? Touche. Jenny. Jenny, what do you got? So I know a lot of people during the pandemic are getting Zoom fatigue and, you know, people have been scheduling more meetings because everything's more convenient if you can just plug in and uh, meet people via Zoom. So uh, logistical problems that in terms of getting people in the same room just no longer exist. And so a lot of people have been getting fatigue from it, complaining, complaining. But then um, I read this article that outlined the, a day in the life of Anthony Fauci. <laughs> and all the meetings he has to go through. And it was published in uh, HuffPost earlier this month. And it basically, you know, he showers at 5, 10 a.m. Um, he's doing emails from 6 to 6.30. Then he does a Zoom call with Good Morning America at 6.30. Commutes at 7 to the NIH. 7.30, he's on another Zoom interview. 8 a.m., another Zoom video. 8.30, another Zoom video. And it just keeps going like this until... He gets a bathroom break at 11.50 a.m. Between 11.50 a.m. and 12 p.m., he gets a bathroom break and an email break. And then he has to go back to Zoom at 12 p.m. <laughs> and this goes on all the way until um, 5.30 p.m. So at least the 4.30 to 5.30 one, he's at least Zooming with NIH people. And then 5.30 to 7, responding to emails, then gets to walk home or commute home at 7, go on a 45-minute walk with his wife, then dinner, then more emails. <laughs> so now I'm like, I, I just can't complain about my life anymore <laughs> after reading that, but he is a hero. So I, I did send him an email early in the pandemic. I, this is a true story. Um, and uh, I actually asked him to be a co-author on a paper. And uh, well, let's just say that didn't happen. <laughs> but I did get an automatic <laughs> reply that he doesn't actually check emails from like low, low, low people like